In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today is a difficult day. I preach to an empty sanctuary. Our next services will be held out on the patio with people present, and that due to Governor Newsom's order. My heart is a little downcast this service because of that. And yet, when I think upon those of you who are at home and think upon your faces, uh, many faces I haven't seen for months, my heart is uplifted and my passion and vigor restores to preach the gospel to you this day as the Lord has given. We are told that the numbers of uh, infections are increasing, so please do take care of yourself and take every precaution you can. Then again, who knows what's really happening out there? Uh, we are basically drowning in a sea of lies. There is something uh, quite parabolic in this in and of itself. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when we ate of the tree of the fruit of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And now today it seems we have all the knowledge we could possibly want, but we can't make any sense of it. We have all knowledge, but we have no one to interpret its meaning for us. We have all knowledge, and yet we are drowning in lies and can't honestly tell what's what. It should come as no surprise. He who led us to eat from the tree of knowledge is himself the father of lies. So this day then, with renewed hearts, with joyful attention, we turn to our Lord Jesus, who not only does not lie, but is himself the truth. I've titled this sermon, New and Old, from our Lord's words at the very end of today's reading. Every scribe who has been trained, or every scribe who has literally been discipled for the kingdom of heaven, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And the universal interpretation of these words is that the treasure is the word of God. This, like so many things in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, is a call to repentance. It's a call to me and to you alike. It's a call to remember that repentance, if it not be empty, is action. Let me put this bluntly. No Christian should spend more time on the news than he does in God's word. Does that strike you as legalistic? No Christian should spend more time in the news than he spends in God's word. Well, what does the news fill you with? Have we not already said knowledge upon knowledge and half of it or most of it lies or indiscernible as to what's true or not? And yet, what is God's word? but pure, unadulterated truth. If our souls are sick, dear friends, it's because we're drinking poison rather than the wholesome spiritual milk 
of God's word. So that is a challenge and a call to action, both to turn off our phones and stop obsessing over the headlines and to turn on our Bibles or open them if you're a caveman like I am and drink deeply once more of the wisdom and truth of God's word. It's a call to action. It's a call to consider also what it is that we Christians treasure. Now, I know we have our answer and our line for what it is that we treasure, but if your time were the indicator of your treasure, where you spend your time, where you spend your attention, what then would that indicate? What would your treasure be? Is God's word a treasure to us? And I don't simply mean opening your Bible, although what better way to start? Consider this. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself possessed no personal Bible. Where on earth did he learn God's word? From his parents and from synagogue every week. That was his source. How on earth did he learn these scriptures so well that even at 12 years old, he caused the teachers in the temple to marvel? I'll tell you how. Where you spend your mental energies, there is your treasure. Even as our Lord Jesus, as a young man, was doing the chores and learning the trade of Joseph, and he was meditating on God's word. Today, in our Lord's word and, and our gospel text, we have themes of treasure and we have themes of judgment. Two parables of treasure, the treasure buried in the field and the pearl of great price, and they are bookended in an inclusio of judgment. So not part of the reading proper, but where we left, leave off in Jesus' preaching is at his explanation of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Remember when we were there? A reminder, this is what our Lord says at the end of that parable. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of falling away and all who practice anomia, lawlessness, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. From these words of judgment, Jesus moves directly onto the parable of the hidden treasure, then the parable of the pearl of great price, and then to the parable of the dragnet once more about judgment. That parable ends with these words. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now if all of this talk of fire and judgment makes us uncomfortable, well then we're uncomfortable with Jesus. Because the reality is that Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in the scriptures. And Jesus talks more about judgment, the impending judgment, than anyone else in the scriptures. And in no uncertain terms, he makes it quite plain that you are either wheat 
gathered into the barns or weed thrown into the fire. You are good fish gathered into the vessels or you are the bad ones thrown into the furnace. So what about those two middle parables, the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price? Well, as I said, I titled this sermon New and Old. So how about if we follow that? What is the new way of understanding these parables? Well, very simply, the new way of understanding these parables is that Jesus is the purchaser, the buyer. Now, this is new because the earliest known reading of the parable in this way comes to us in the middle of the 19th century. Prior to that, for 1,800 years, people had taken it as we are the purchasers. We are the buyers. This flips it. Jesus is the purchaser. Jesus is the buyer. Now, what does that mean? It means that the church is the treasure buried in the field. The field would be the world. And that Jesus buys not only the treasure, but he buys the whole field. So he sells all that he has. That's plainly the cross, where he divests himself of all possessions, including his own life. He sells all that he has. He buys the whole field, the whole world, and the church, that treasure which is in the field. The church, too, then, is the pearl of great price. So Christ sells all that he has in order to buy that one pearl. And what could be wrong with this reading? Honestly, not much. It's a fantastic reading filled with hope and joy, and every part of it's true. In fact, if you look at your service folder, if you have one at home and you've downloaded it, right on the front cover is a rather provocative picture. It might be confusing at first, but what you see is a casket, a casket buried in a field, and that casket has been dug up. The treasure buried in the field is us. And our Lord Jesus, by his death on the cross, making perfect atonement for all of our sins, by his resurrection, wins for us resurrection. And so he buys the whole field, and the treasure he has is the resurrection of our bodies. He has eternal brothers and sisters bought and purchased by his blood. We also, in this reading, get to see ourselves, get to see the church as God sees us. He sees us as treasure. He sees us as an invaluable pearl. Not only then can we take our own personal value from him, but we can begin to see those around us as possessing this very same value in the eyes of our Lord Jesus. So that's the new. What about the old? Well, as I mentioned before, basically every single theologian, church father, Christian, etc., from Irenaeus to Chrysostom, from Augustine to the Lutheran fathers, every one of them, and all the way through, and the vast majority still today, something like 2,000 years of almost universal, unanimous reading, says that the treasure buried in the field and the pearl of great price are Christ. And often, with an eye toward this sort of view, that the treasure buried in the field is the mystery of Christ 
hidden in the Old Testament scriptures. And the pearl of great price is Christ whose value and worth surpasses all earthly treasures. I find this reading, frankly, quite refreshing. Because all too often, the ethos in the church, both, well, in terms of internally, it's been really like this. What is the least possible I can put in? What is the very least I could possibly do or pay in order to be a Christian? And unfortunately, we as church, and I don't mean faith in specific, but we as church have catered to that, and we've lowered the bar lower and lower and lower and lower until we try to indoctrinate someone in the Christian faith in the course of an afternoon, constantly lowering the price, lowering the value, and it's had devastating effects. One of the, uh, the most shocking statistics to come out recently from the Barna Research Group, and again, we don't base our theology on this, but it is an interesting indicator, statistically speaking, of what's going on. The Barna Group reports that one in three practicing Christians has stopped attending church altogether during COVID-19. That means not just physically, but online too. A full third of any given congregation is not doing church at all. Now comes true those words of Scripture, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. But even more disturbing, <laughs> at least to me, here's a quote, and it's just a partial sentence, but here's a quote from what, they, what the Barna Group has to count as a practicing Christian. Ready? Recent data show that among practicing Christians, those who identify as Christian agree strongly that faith is very important in their lives and attend church at least monthly. Wait a minute. A practicing Christian is someone who attends church monthly? That is sad. Twelve times a year. That constitutes a practicing Christian? I'm not actually even sorry to say this. That is entirely sub-Christian. The scriptures tell us plainly to not forsake gathering together. The third commandment tells us to not despise preaching in his word. Our Lord Jesus shows up to give his word and his sacraments, and we can make it 12 times a year? Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. What is it that you treasure? Now, if those one-third who have departed from the church already just on account of the virus, if they were confronted, what do you suppose they would say in their defense? Jesus still loves me. I don't have to do anything after all. Stop being so legalistic. That's precisely the excuses we would hear. Our response must be, dear friend, do you so devalue the treasure and pearl that he's not even worth a single hour of your time a week? Not even one hour? Indeed, as our Lord says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
the message of COVID rings loud and clear once more. Repent. But we would be fools to think that this call to repentance somehow excludes those of us within the church. Repentance is a call to action, and it begins with the household of God. Now, if it is the case that you're truly not going out anywhere else, and so church is part of that, then what you need to realize is that you have a new Christian vocation. And it's much akin to that of a monk or a nun. Even our catechism teaches us that when we're going about our regular daily affairs, we pray a minimum of five times a day, morning and evening and at meals. Now, if you're stuck at home with nothing better to do than stew over the news, guess what? That is not what God is calling you to do. If you are stuck at home, God is calling you to a life of quiet and a life of intercession, to pray on behalf of the people of God, to pray on behalf of our world, to reacquaint yourself with the word of God that it might dwell in you richly. And as for the church corporately, we hear loud and clear the call to stop lowering the bar. Enough of this have-it-your-way Christianity. Enough of casting pearls before swine. We ought to expect from ourselves and from our fellow Christians what Jesus and his own apostles expect. So that's the question for today. What would you pay? What would you trade? What would you give up to not be one of those weeds who cries out, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I knew you not. What would you pay, trade, or give up to not be one of those fish thrown into the furnace? And why do you think that Jesus preaches in just this way? First, because the possibility is very real. And second, because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he does not want that to be your end. He wants you to have him, the greatest treasure, the one pearl worth more than any other. Because to have Jesus is to have life. To have Jesus is to have the forgiveness of all your sins. To have Jesus is to have the very righteousness of God. To have Jesus is to have a window into our Lord, our Father's, our Heavenly Father's loving heart. To have Jesus is to have the greatest and the only true and lasting treasure there is. To have Jesus is to have the pearl of great price and to have it with you wherever you go, in this world or in the next. How does Christ come to possess you? By giving everything he has. How do you come to possess him? By giving everything you have.
just as in any marriage. At the altar, you may say, I don't, and you keep yourself. Or you may say, I do, and you lose everything you have in order to gain the other. To have Jesus will indeed cost you all that you have. Anything less would be a lie. Because on the day of your death, on the day of your particular judgment, you either stand before God with what you have, or you stand before God with Christ. You cannot have both. You either keep what you have and have no Christ, or you sell what you have and possess Christ forever. Does our Lord not say, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it? Does he not say, store up treasures for yourself where neither moth nor rust can destroy? Store up treasures for yourself in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And does he not say and ask, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You may keep yourself as you are, or you may have Christ, but not both. God's blessings to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please rise for the prayers of the church.